Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991. To Boston, Bloomberg 1200. To San Francisco, Bloomberg 960. To the country, Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning, 830 on Wall Street. I'm Michael McKee, along with Tom Keen. Economic Indicators brought to you by Commonwealth Financial Network. When it's time to change the conversation, talk with a broker-dealer RIA that's ready to listen. Call 866-462-3638 or visit Commonwealth.com to learn more. And hold on to that thought because our economic indicators today don't come out until 10 o'clock. We've got two of interest new home sales. They're expected to be up 2.4%. Home sales kind of volatile, so hard to tell whether that will actually happen or not. And the Richmond Fed Manufacturing Index, which is uh, sometimes ignored but may have a big influence on thinking uh, today, it's uh, forecast to drop to 8 from 14, but several of the other regional Fed indexes have been negative, and the suggestion is if uh, we get a bad number from Richmond, then people will worry about the ISM number that is due out on the 1st of June, and Of course, everybody is looking to the June data to decide what the Fed is going to do. Fed officials suggesting that if the data come in as expected, they'll raise rates in June or maybe possibly July. David Rosenberg, who's chief economist at Gluskin Chef, is uh, one of the few people out there that I have seen that is uh, not very concerned about what the data say because you don't seem to be very convinced that the Fed actually is going to move in June. Well, uh, I think that you have a lot of um, hawks and maybe even f- former doves that have centered hawkish lately uh, talking in that direction. You know, what's interesting, Mike, is that, you know, if you take a look at the uh, Fed futures contracts, uh, they're barely priced more than 50-50 for the Fed to go this summer. So what's interesting in this narrative is that the markets uh, don't even seem convinced uh, that the Fed after uh, having barked uh, so many times throughout this cycle, uh, are necessarily going to bite. Um, and, uh, you know, they, um, they, you know they, they clearly are talking as though uh, it's going to be a live meeting in June, if not June, then July. Um, and um, I don't think a rate hike is uh, necessary at the current time. Uh, but even if they go one more time, I, I think that's probably going to be it for an extended period. The uh, the Fed doesn't want people to have that message. It appears so. Um, why are you so convinced? I mean, if if they follow your advice, wouldn't they have a credibility problem? Well, look, they uh, went into this year uh, telling us that they were going to hike four times. So uh, now it's basically once, maybe twice. So is that a credibility problem? Um, that they set four, and now it's going to be one or two. Uh, look, if you go back, uh, I think go back a few years to what the Fed was saying the funds rate was going to be today, just a few years ago, uh, you'd be talking about they would have hiked like about uh, six or eight times. They moved once. So does the Fed have a credibility problem? I'm not going to say they have a credibility problem per se. Uh, maybe they have a bit of a forecasting problem uh, because every step of the way they've been overly optimistic on growth. Uh, and um, and I think that's uh, you know part of the picture here. Uh, look at if, if they set the bar, if, if for them that we need to see improvement in the second quarter from what yeah. was 
a paltry, I mean, at best with a revision 1% first quarter, uh, then I guess they're going to raise rates. You know, I mean, what, what can you say? Uh, you know, the, 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 the ECB raised rates when? I think back in 2011. Uh, you had Bernanke back in, that, in, in 2008 talking about raising rates that summer. So is it possible that they raise rates? Absolutely it's possible. Uh, do I think that it's necessarily a very wise move? Yeah. I think historians will look back and say, no, you, you probably didn't have to, especially when the rest of the world uh, is moving in the direction. Like, what, what does the Fed see, with all due respect, <coughs> that the Reserve Bank of Australia doesn't see as they are actually mm-hmm. messaging in the other direction? Uh, and so, um, I don't know, we, do, we don't, we don't live the financial life in a vacuum. So I, I the, the sudden yeah. move towards having to raise rates this summer, maybe they just feel they've got to move further off of zero. They want to stay silent during the election period. And so maybe they move one more time and then they well, stay on the sidelines. David, I want to talk about negative rates in our next section, but right now, uh, you've got a very nice section in your recent note on the yield curve. It's the 210 spread, you can look at 230s as well, is doing some strange and odd things. You interpret it different than most. What do you see in a flatter yield curve? Well, I, I don't know if it's a different interpretation. It's just basically uh, uh, the bond market's way of telling you uh, what uh, it expects growth to be in the United States. And so the flattening yield curve is ipso facto predicting um, a very sluggish economic outlook. Is it really that much different than a stock market uh, that has not made a new high in over a year? Uh, is it consistent with the recent rolling over of the commodity complex? Uh, no. So they're all basically telling you that the odd man out here is the mm-hmm. Fed, although the Fed could be operating on a hope and prayer, which they've been doing for the better part of the past six years. They were always just one quarter away from escape velocity. Uh, but the markets are sending you a different signal, and um, I don't know what others are saying about the yield curve. The yield curve is flattening. It's telling you about disinflation, not right. inflation. On a basis, it's about slower growth, not accelerating growth. Very quickly here, on a basis point basis, do you have a point where it begins to signal real contraction? I mean, is it 90 basis points or 50 basis points positive, or do you have to go down to zero? Well, normally, normally zero to outright uh, inversion. Uh, is the head for the hills uh, point uh, in terms of the yield curve. So it, it has to invert. It's not like it sort of inverts or it flattens it. Once it inverts, um, right. within the next six to nine months, the party's over. Okay, well, let's come back. David Rosenberg with us with Luskin Chef, and we, of course, have to ask about uh, what we're seeing in banking in Europe. What a set of news from Unicredit with real questions there about their leadership and Deutsche Bank with a Moody's cutback, crying, pushing back against Deutsche Bank uh, this morning. Jess Daly's interview with Francine Lacroix from Barclays on the urgency of reorganization. They're all of it folding into negative rates. Michael McKee and I will speak to Mr. Rosenberg of Gluskin Chef on the distortions of the moment. Futures advance up 12, Dow futures up 97. It's a Rosenberg bull market. This hour of surveillance is brought to you by BMW Mount Kisco. Visit BMWMountKisco.com. Here's Michael Barr with news headlines. Mike, Tom, thank you very much. There are still more questions about the crash of Egypt Air Flight 804, but a senior Egyptian forensics official says an initial look at recovered body parts suggests an explosion of some kind. It is still unknown what may have caused such a blast, and the search continues in the Mediterranean for the debris from the aircraft, including the black boxes. After praising the new warmer relations between the United States and Vietnam, President Barack Obama is using the second day of his visit to promote greater freedom for the country's citizens. 
President Obama said in a speech today that better human rights would improve the communist country's economy, stability, and regional power. The president also spoke about the U.S. and Vietnam's shared legacies from the war. In both our countries, our veterans and families of the fallen still ache for the friends and loved ones that they lost. India is set for the highest monsoon rainfall in 22 years as La Nina looms. It will help in the planting of rice, corn, and other crops. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus around the world. I'm Mike Labar. Mike, Tom? Thank you, Michael. Time now for the Land Rover Parsippany Bloomberg NBC Sports update with John Stashar. All right, Mike, solid pitching, three home runs, led to an easy win for the Mets. 7-1 of Washington, David Wright, a three-run shot and a five-run third inning. Yoannis Cespedes and Neil Walker went back-to-back in the fifth. Major League leading 15th of the year for Cespedes and the 11th for Walker and Bartolo Colon with seven strong innings. We'll see what happens tonight. Matt Harvey comes in 3-6, and 5.77 ERA. Last week against the Nationals, knocked out in the third inning, allowing nine runs. Harvey will post Steven Strasburg, who's 7-0. and Winner tonight will be in first place. NBA playoffs, Toronto again beat Cleveland 105-99. The backcourt of Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan a combined 67 points and a bit of a surprise. The East Finals are tied at two. Tonight's game four in the West. Raymond Green's kick to Steven Adams resulted in a fine, but no suspension. Oklahoma City's up 2-1, but Golden State has not lost two games in a row all year. Hockey, San Jose won 6-3 at St. Louis for a 3-2 lead in the West. The Sharks, one win from a first-ever trip to the Stanley Cup Final. The Jets start off-season workouts today. They still don't know who their quarterback's going to be. Ryan Fitzpatrick, speaking of the golf outing, made it clear he has no plans to retire, wants to be back with the Jets, but the two sides still far apart on a salary. With the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update, I'm John Stitch. John, thanks so much. Michael, what do you see out there? I mean, housing data and housing data through the week, and we'll get some other data as well. As, as David Rosenberg mentioned, uh, commodities a little soggy. Oil finally gets a bid, but gold is down $2 just in the last 40 minutes. People are going to look at the uh, numbers on uh, housing. They'll also look at the numbers on capital goods orders coming up uh, later this week and uh, and then those ISMs. Yeah, those ISMs. I'd also point out Euro weaker, 111.67. Uh, not so much dollar strength, but just Euro weaker, 111.68 down 53 pips. Sterling on a tear off the Carney comments this morning. We are with David Rosenberg of Gluskin Chef. Coming up, Michael McKee and I will talk to Mr. Rosenberg about the most interesting thing out there, not the Montreal Canadiens in their fall, uh, but negative interest rates. It's uh, challenging, to say the least. With David Rosenberg, this is Bloomberg Surveillance. This Porch Report was brought to you by Land Rover Parsippany. The spring sales event is happening now. Visit LandRoverParsippany.com. Land Rover, above and beyond. Global Business News, 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And this Bloomberg Business Flash being brought to you by the accountants and advisors at Eisner Amper. Cyber security is on the mind of every business leader. Managing cyber risk should be, too. Get started with a cyber risk assessment. Learn more at EisnerAmper.com slash cyber risk. 
Well, European banks continue to struggle. Unicredit's chief executive officer may resign as soon as today amid investor demands for a change in management. That's according to people with knowledge of the situation. Earlier today on Bloomberg, the first word, we spoke with Jess Daly, the CEO of Barclays, about the environment for investment banking. The investment banking industry everywhere is having a difficult time. Um, uh, you could argue that almost no investment bank, be it American or German or, or, or British, is covering its cost of capital. That's not healthy for the financial system globally. And the odds of a rate hike by the Federal Reserve at its June meeting, they have risen to about 28%. And as a result of that, we're seeing a stronger dollar cross the barred euro right now, 111.69. The yen at 109.69. And British pound sterling, that is higher, 146.11 as the Brexit vote appears. The two-year yield in the U.S., 0.90%, 0.90%, the 10-year yield at 1.84%. Uh, Comex Gold this morning, that's down 1%, down $12.70 uh, an ounce at 12.3880. And IMEX Crude, that has turned higher right now, up 32 cents a barrel at 48.39. We check the markets for you every 15 minutes during the trading day right here on Bloomberg Radio. Surveillance continues with Mike McKee and Tom Keene. John Tucker, thank you so much. It is 849 on Wall Street. The following is from Bloomberg View. Opinions and commentary from Bloomberg columnists. I'm Justin Fox, a columnist for Bloomberg View. In his 2001 autobiography, A Passion to Win, Sumner Redstone, the controlling shareholder of CBS and Viacom, uses the word friend 67 times. The late TV producer Aaron Spelling is one of my closest friends, he writes. Former Time Warner CEO Jerry Levin is a very close friend. Former Nickelodeon chief Geraldine Laburn is an extremely close friend. Then we get to the people now battling over Redstone's legacy. Philippe Duman, the current CEO of Viacom, is a close friend. Redstone's daughter Sherry is one of his best friends. Best sounds better than close, which would seem to give Sherry the advantage over Duman. Things are never quite that simple with Sumner Redstone, though. Two years ago, he and Sherry weren't even speaking. And, as one learns from his book, his friendships do come and go. He has never allowed them to stand in the way of getting what he wants. Now, though, Redstone is 92. There is nothing left for him to conquer, and his waning years have been embarrassing, even a little tragic. Maybe it's because, despite all his talk of friendship, the guy doesn't have any real friends. I'm Justin Fox, a columnist for Bloomberg View. For more Bloomberg opinion and commentary, please go to BloombergView.com or View Go on the Bloomberg Terminal. This has been Bloomberg View. And Bloomberg View commentary can be heard hourly weekdays on Bloomberg Radio. David Rosenberg with us with Gluskin Chef. There's 42 things to talk about. David, I would suggest on this morning of Unicredit, Deutsche Bank, Barclays, and other challenges that we can talk about the transmission mechanism through the system, through the money economy, and through the real economy of negative interest rates. I know you've thought a lot about this. Maybe your Canada is removed from negative rates, but a good part of the world isn't. What do negative rates mean for the real economy? Well, you know, when you think of negative interest rates, uh, what it really amounts to when you think about it is a, uh, a tax on uh, banking sector reserves. And uh, when you consider the old adage that um, anything you tax, uh, you'll get less of, um, and the banks are there to create credit, 
you know, when you tax the banks, uh, which is a negative interest rate actually does, uh, you get less actually of what you want. Uh, it's it's um, a mystery once again as to why anybody would think uh, that the answer to a deleveraging cycle would be to impose a tax on bank reserves. So uh, the choices are simple. Uh, for a bank, uh, you either uh, choose not to pass it on and you take it, uh, take the hit on after-tax profits, um, or you pass those taxes on to the deposit depositors by having them accept a lower interest rate on their deposits, which means they have less income ultimately to spend in the real economy, uh, or the bank actually ends up taxing uh, the borrowers by charging them higher interest rates, which, by the way, you've seen in some of these countries in Europe that actually um, embarked on this road towards negative interest rates. So um, I've never found a tax that stimulated the economy, uh, and here you're seeing uh, first and foremost a great experiment as to how it's not working. Are any... Uh... Fed uh, or um, Western Central Bank stimulus programs actually working anymore? Well, you know, I, I think that we've hit what's referred to as the law of diminishing returns, where, uh, you know, we're getting less out of it. I think that uh, here's, here's the problem, uh, is that um, well, there's not really been much in the way of deleveraging the cycle uh, in the sense of looking at debt-to-GDP ratios. And I don't know if it's the debt that's the real problem. It's the fact that there is insufficient global growth. And so um, I think the monetary policy um, is very good at influencing the business cycle. Uh, monetary policy is not very good at influencing structural impediments to growth. Uh, the next stage has to be fiscal policy or fiscal policy in terms of how it interacts with monetary policy. Uh, the father of QE, of course, was Ben Bernanke, uh, who talked about it not once but twice uh, when uh, he was governor back in uh, in November 2002 and then in March of 2003. Uh, he talked about QE incessantly. The Fed never went there for another six years. But if you go back to the earlier musings by Ben Bernanke when he first joined the Fed, uh, he also talked about um, helicopter money, which is how he got his moniker, Helicopter Ben. Uh, really nothing new. Milton Friedman made a career out of talking about this. Um, so this um, cycle of unacceptably uh, slow growth that has led to the political situation we have in the U.S. today uh, does not end uh, until we get a more radical fiscal approach to the situation. And if we don't? Then it's going to be continued muddled through. And although I don't have a recession in the forecast, um, I think one of the reasons why, if you ask the typical Wall Street economist, why are you at 30% recession odds, um, it's because there's such a thin margin of error. Uh, we're just a, when you're running the, I mean, underlying growth right now is barely one and a half percent. And uh, and so I remember the days when I started this business in the 80s into the 90s. I mean, one and a half percent growth. You start talking about, geez, well, when's the recession coming? Um, and uh, that's the best we can do today. Uh, roughly 1.5% growth is really what we've averaged over the past three quarters. Um, there's no sign in any leading indicator telling you that's going to be accelerating. Uh, and uh, what it means is that you're always just one shock away uh, from slipping below the zero line. So it's, not, so it's more that the recession risks um, stay elevated. And so when you're wondering how could it possibly be that with an ultra-low uh, a priori uh, um, cost of equity and debt capital, how can you therefore go through the weakest capital spending cycle of all time is because the corporate sector 
has no visibility when it comes to aggregate demand growth. Uh, that's the fundamental problem. So um, we're just basically stuck in this very weak economic environment um, until we get Newton's first law coming uh, to fruition, which is that um, the ball in motion will stay in motion until there's right. a countervailing force. Well, what is that countervailing force going to be? We've expended monetary policy to the limits. I'm not going to say they're totally out of bullets, um, but really the um, the lack of the lack of a creative fiscal response to years of unacceptably unacceptably low growth uh, is the real story here. Well, within that, and, and to keep the physics metaphor going and the, iner- the idea of inertial force uh, going, what is a policy prescription you would have for the central bankers and for the leaders that, that they report to, essentially? Well, look, I think that we have to, um, Tom, isolate what, what is the, what's, what's the problem? What is the problem? What is the problem that we have, actually haven't resolved is excessive global Indebtedness, even in the U.S. I agree. We have not cleared well, markets. So, the, so, the, so here's what has to happen. In my opinion is, is that um, we have to go back to the Bernanke uh, helicopter money, where here's 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 where the cycle ends, and we go to a new era of inflation, uh, and it basically is going to mean that uh, the, the the Fed buys a trillion dollar perpetual bond from the Treasury, cuts the Treasury a check. Half that money goes to a tax cut so that we can actually, a tax cut for the middle class so that we can actually re-expand that critical part of the economy. And the other half towards real infrastructure spending. There were a lot of funky things with the New Deal in the 1930s, but uh, mm-hmm. the Hoover Dam, if I'm not mistaken, is still in place today. So maybe we need some new Hoover Dams. But half the money yeah. towards tax cuts, half the money towards right. infrastructure spending. Yeah. And we'll be into a new cycle. It'd be nice to actually talk about inflation again. Yeah. That's how we'll do it. Uh, we got a question in uh, from a listener, David. I've got to ask you this. How is it watching the Stanley Cup with four American teams? Are you as riveted as you would be if the Maple Leafs or the Canadians were? In I got play? three words. I got three words for the listener. Three words. Go, go Raptors, go. <laughs> <laughs> If you want, David, I'll reach over and whack him. David Rosenberg, thank you. So David and I are David and I are looking for an infrastructure investment to salvage the Montreal Canadiens by this fall. Mr. Rosenberg is in Toronto with Bluskin Chef, but bleeds Montreal uh, Canadian Blue Blanche Rouge. Uh, We are coast to coast. We're around the world. Michael McKee and Tom Keane. Futures up twelve. Another hour of Bloomberg surveillance.